Do you want to learn more about reverse mortgages? Well, stick around and listen to part one of two of my discussion with reverse mortgage specialist Josh Bloom in this, the 42nd episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, Social Security, Medicare, Portfolio Withdrawal Strategies, Annuities, Estate Planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome back. Thank you as always for listening. We got a fun one today. I like to think all these are fun. But no, seriously, this one today is part one of two of a previous discussion I had with Josh Bloom, who is a reverse mortgage specialist with Mutual of Omaha. Josh, uh, I had Josh on when I was doing my weekly live videos, my Facebook group, Taxes and Retirement. I would have a special guest come on typically once a month to talk about a particular topic or strategy or uh, something in which I wasn't the, or I'm not an expert in. So I decided to do one about reverse mortgages because I, I think they can be uh, of benefit to certain people in certain situations. So I, I'm acquainted with Josh. I thought he'd be the perfect person to come and, and talk about these since this is what he does. He's truly an expert in it. So we we wrapped for about, I don't know, I think the, the original recording, the original video is about an hour and 15 minutes that included a bunch of Q&A, but a lot of it was Josh going over the basics. What exactly is a reverse mortgage? How is it different than a regular mortgage? When does it make sense to consider? When does it not? Where are the fees involved? What's, what's the process of getting one, et cetera? I thought it was a tremendously insightful and educational discussion, and I'm very appreciative of Josh and his time for uh, sharing his, his wealth of knowledge and info. So again, that was originally aired, um, my Facebook, uh, it was a live video within my Facebook group, Tax and Retirement. We did it in 2021, early 2021, I think. Um, it was a great video. It was a great discussion. So I, I think it's worth bringing up and, and uh, in effect, replaying here. A lot of the things Josh talked about, even though it was over a year ago, are, are pretty timeless and, and or at least still as applicable now and relevant now as they were, um, as they were then. So I think it'll be of uh, a lot of interest to, to you all. Uh, without further ado, let me stop flapping my gums here and bring you part one of two of my discussion with Josh Bloom about reverse mortgages. Got a great one for you tonight, a special one. I have a special guest, quick little giveaway here. We'll be talking about reverse mortgages with the one and only Josh Bloom. Hello, Josh. Andy, hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. So Josh is a uh, home equity retirement specialist. He's been in the retirement industry for over 15 years at this point, right, Josh? Awesome. So we will be talking about, uh, so reverse mortgage, that's when the bank borrows money from me, correct? Is that how that works? No? When they or, take or your it, house, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Or is it just mortgages spelled backwards? Is, is that it? Um, all right. Before we get into it, as always, let me run you all with the disclosure. So this video is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you see in this video, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor, which neither Josh nor I am. We are just two blokes here talking about reverse mortgages on Facebook tonight. All right. Isn't it? Exciting night. So, Josh, uh, I hear you like jokes. I love them. <laughs> oh, yeah, you do. <laughs> All right. Why is the mushroom always invited to parties? Why? Because he's a fun guy. <laughs> Man, all right. Uh, I'm just, okay, this, this one I like. This one's relevant. 
My boss always laughed at my jokes at work, but since the pandemic, she never laughs at them in Zoom chats. I asked her why she doesn't laugh at them anymore. She replied, because your jokes aren't remotely funny. That was bad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I got two more here. Let's see. What's what's the uh, least bad of them? So my wife said to me, I don't really understand the science behind human cloning. I said, that makes two of us. (laughs) Because there's two of me now. All right. Right. <sighs> you, you got to live through it. Sorry, you got to you got to just deal with the pain for a little bit here, Josh. All right. I wouldn't have it any other way, Andy. Come on. <laughs> cool. All right. So um, reverse mortgages. Maybe it's you know anything else you want to mention about yourself again? So reverse uh, home equity retirement specialist. Um, who I mean, are you? What do you do? You hit the nail on the head. Fifteen years in the industry. I I started out straight out of college, trying to do what you did. Learned real quick. It wasn't quite for me, especially at that age. And uh, went the wholesale route, where I became a product specialist in the retirement income space. You know, seven sixty six, all the fancy licenses and everything for over a decade. uh, Prior to becoming hyper specialized on what I do today, which is the reverse mortgage, or what's more formally known as the home equity conversion mortgage. Mm -hmm. Um, So you know, my I geek out in the retirement space. You, you know, people listening and watching, you probably see my comments from time to time. Anytime retirement's brought up, it's a chance I might have an opinion on it. And I don't have those same licenses, so I can actually speak my opinion on it without having to worry right. too much. It's a nice thing. Right. Uh, so yeah, just excited to be here, man. Really excited to have the conversation and maybe open some eyes to what this is and what it isn't and dispel some of the myths and misconceptions out there. Yeah, awesome. Looking forward to it. So may- maybe if we can just start and for everyone watching at home, uh, feel free to plop questions in. You know, Josh is uh, happy to to answer them along the way. Um, high level primer, you know, super super quick. I think everyone kind of knows what a basic mortgage is. You borrow using your house as collateral. Uh, what is a reverse mortgage in a nutshell? Yeah, a reverse mortgage is really by design an instrument that allows you to liquidate a part of the value of your house while you're still living in it which you okay. could argue is every type of loan out there, yeah. es- essentially. The, the primary difference with the reverse mortgage is when I borrow money and pull money from my home and from the equity in my house, I don't have to make mandatory payments on it. Okay. So it, it's a unique loan in that it's non-amortizing, right? There's no, there's no payment schedule. There's no fixed period of time where the balance goes to zero because I'm not mandated to make payments on a monthly basis. Add to that, Andy, that it's the only loan you can get in this country that is age discriminatory in a sense, because you have to be at least 62 and up, or if you're married, at least okay. one out of the two has to be 62 and up. So it does it does have a unique space, but ultimately it's just access to the equity in your house. It's another instrument to do that. Okay. And and just curious, why over 62? I mean, I know it's intended as sort of a uh, retirement income tool is the right word, but clearly geared towards people in their 60s, obviously. Why 62? Why not 55? Why not unlimited age? Yeah, you know, this this got passed by Congress as a bill. So this is not lender created, right? That, I think that, that's probably an important thing to recognize yeah. that the government really came out and, and built this out. Uh, so it was a HUD bill passed by Congress in 87. Reagan signed it into law, I think, February of 88. Uh, and by design, it's meant to help people age in place. In a lot of ways, it's it's very similar and analogous to Social Security, which also happens to start as early as age 62, uh, in that it's meant to be a support system for Americans to be able to accomplish something. In this case, age in place specifically. Yeah. And in specifically using, again, the primary residence as collateral, I guess thought process is a lot of people, the equity they have built up, locked up in their home, 
is one of the largest, if not the largest, sources of their asset or you know piece of asset, if you will. So uh, is is the thought why not use that while you're alive to, uh, to to pay for some of life or other things? Yeah, essentially you you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I, you look at the studies, and they had studies going all the way back to 2011 on this. Uh, on average, 68 percent of uh, American retirees' wealth is tied up in their house. So, yeah. so when we think about the average person, which I know might not be everybody listening into us in this group, for example, but it, it's relevant, right? There's a yeah. there's a significantly pro- large proportion of wealth in our homes. And for the retirement challenge we have today, which is arguably we're living a really long time, we've got to deal with longevity risk and this idea that we might outlive our money. Uh, it, it's a little rhetorical to ask, but it's crazy to ignore that asset, right? It should yeah. be coordinated with our planning. It should be a part of the conversation. And the reverse mortgage is not the only tool to look at when we're talking about home equity, but it, but it's an important one. Sure. We have a, a question and maybe this may be better answered through additional sort of discussion and explanation, but Dave Fultz asks, is there an ideal age to do a reverse mortgage? Well, it, it's a, it's a great question, Dave or David. It's, there's been a lot of research done by academics on, on Andy's side of the desk, right? You know, so I, I, I'm, I'm a loan officer. I work for a lender. So you got to appreciate where I'm coming from. But when you look at the academics and you look at uh, University of Pennsylvania, Wharton School of Business, you look at uh, Boston College, Texas Tech, you start looking at the University of Illinois, Academy of uh, Home Equity. There, there's a whole lot of research out there that's been done by, by academics. And it, it's all really pointing to the same understanding. And the understanding being that the traditional place to use a reverse mortgage in most people's minds is as a loan of last resort. It's as far down the road as possible. It's let's wipe out everything else. Let's draw everything down to zero. And now we've got this as a piggy bank, if you will, at the end. Uh, It's it's just a place for us to keep our most important wealth and at the roof over our head. That's kind of been placed on its head, right? That's That's been flipped. And the script really from the academics today is if you're going to need to access the wealth in your house, the sooner you can coordinate the wealth in your house with the rest of your assets, the better probability of success you're going to have. And so is there an ideal age? Now, it's going to be specific to your situation or anybody's situation where this is appropriate. But generally, the sooner, the better. Okay. And again, 62 is the earliest you can do it. Or if you're married, one of the spouses has to be 62, right? Yeah, with with the home equity conversion mortgage, Andy. So so I'll, I'll clarify that a little bit. Reverse mortgage is slang. It's really any product out there that allows you to have access to the equity in your house without having a monthly payment associated with it. Okay. The HECM, the home equity conversion mortgage, is the FHA insured reverse mortgage. That's ninety four percent of them. Okay. But the proprietary market has started to pick up significantly in the last few years, uh, and so these are non FHA insured reverse mortgages. And those actually can start as early as 60. We tend to see those used okay. more on the higher affluency. So million dollar properties and above that you see that marketplace really start to build out and become more robust. And, and why 60? Is, is that also government driven or that's just the industry at large decided 60 is where we start this? I, I think that's industry at large. Everything within the reverse mortgage world is really actuarially driven. So it's okay. all based on life expectancy, all the calculations, everything that they're they're offering as a benefit and a value proposition within the tool is age-based. So the right. okay. older you are, the shorter your life expectancy, the more robust benefit you're going to get. I think 60, they feel like it's a good starting point. Okay. And um, this, this may be stepping back a bit. So 
I was going to say, can you, can you go more into the different types of loans? I guess there's two ways to think about it. One is the HECM, the Home Equity Conversion Mortgage FHA insured. One is, I guess, the non-FHA insured, which you said is approximately 6% of the market. Um, what's the difference? Why would someone choose one or the other? And then sort of next topic, if you will, is can you just go through the types of mortgages? Like, is there a fixed loan? Is there a revolver? Is there a whatever? Yeah. It, you know, it's interesting. There's there's a lot of similarities between the two, and over the last few years, especially, they they've they've come closer together. It used to be, and there's there's appreciate a lot of changes in the reverse mortgage. That the heck, um, at large has changed significantly over the years, and, it, and it's constantly being tweaked okay. it, to to have a better risk profile for the FHA insurance fund, which supports it and insures a portion of this. Uh, the FHA insured HECM had a cap on home value and that okay. cap used to be pretty low. It's not anymore. So it's, it's this year, it's $822,000 and change, but you know, go back a few years, it was down in the 500,000 range or below. And so when you dealt with higher value homes, it's not that you couldn't use a million and a half dollar home and use a HECM. It's just that all of the value you were going to derive from it hit a ceiling in regards to the home value. So it didn't matter if your okay. house was worth 5 million or worth 1 million, you were only basing the calculations off whatever that cap was for the, for the HECM. Okay. So the proprietary space was really designed well, if I have a two or three or $4 million home, if I'm more in an urban area where I have really high home values, yeah. then let's create a product that still gives me some benefit for all that value of home that would otherwise get ignored by the HECM. So is that like conventional mortgages where, uh, you know, traditional first mortgage, borrow to buy a house, whatever. Some are guaranteed by the uh, FHA or, or not FHA, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Ginny Mae, um, because they conform. They're called conforming loans. They're only a certain size, credit scores, whatever. And then if you need a jumbo loan, something that's large, you know, what the government agencies will back, then you go to a private insurer. Is this loosely similar? So they cap loan size as one of the FHA requirements? That 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 that's a great way to kind of look at it simply. Yeah, it, it it's very okay. similar in that aspect to the traditional market. You've got uh, your traditional, and then you move into the jumbo space, and this affords you the ability to do the same. Got it. Okay. Now, what's the trade-off? So, if if I'm uh, a, a potential reverse mortgage borrower, is it solely the value of my house and or loan size I want or need? That's the determining factor. Like, what are the other gives and takes and pros and cons of going FHA insured HECM versus uh, private? Well, generally in the jumbo space, just like you're going to see in the conventional marketplace, you're dealing with higher rates and you're okay. dealing with potentially less flexibility, which I you especially see in the home equity conversion mortgage. So, uh, the home equity conversion mortgage, you have a tremendous amount of flexibility in, in the structure and what you can do with the, the equity you get access to. Uh, so, for example, Andy, you could go ahead and you can take a lump sum up front, which there, there's yep. a number of reasons you might want to do so. Uh, you could take uh, an income stream over a period of time or okay. over the length of time you're going to live in the house. You could create a line of credit, a non-callable guaranteed line of credit that will always be there for you down the road to use okay. more strategically as a security blanket or, or safety net, any combination thereof within the HECM. Within okay. the structure of your jumbos, for the most part, not, not completely, but for the most part, they're really fixed rate loans, which means the asset needs to be used up front. Whatever equity you're taking for the okay. most part needs to be used up front. 
some of them do have more flexibility built in lines of credit, the ability to draw some income, but they're, they're very much more tightly designed. The, okay. the Heckam is very open and, and loose ended in a lot of ways with what you can do with it. It's what makes it a really good planning tool because yeah. there's a lot of uses for it. Okay. And, and fee wise, does the FHA option come with uh, hand in hand with either higher fees because it is insured or because of the greater flexibility versus private? It's a fantastic question. Yes. I, it, so every reverse mortgage on the Heckam side has an FHA insurance component to it. So anybody okay. familiar with FHA loans, which traditionally we think first time home buyers, first time home buyers pay into the FHA mortgage insurance fund. It's the same exact fund that reverse mortgage borrowers are paying into. The difference is for a first time home buyer, you're going to be making payments for the next 15 or 30 years, whatever the terms of yeah. your loan are. You have a monthly payment to make within the reverse mortgage. You're arguably never going to make a monthly payment for the most part. And so they package that up front. And, and that insurance is very specific, Andy. It's for the non-recourse feature of the reverse mortgage. Mm. I, I like to say to, to our everyday listeners, that's a fancy way of saying you cannot be upside down or underwater in a reverse mortgage. You're protected against that. The insurance protects you and the lender against that. The lender okay. will always get paid whatever balances due on the loan, whether or not you're underwater you can never owe more than your home is worth or what it sells for at 95% of appraised value. So that insurance okay. component, very unique to the reverse mortgage, doesn't exist in the private space. So when you go right. to that general marketplace, that doesn't exist. Now, as a that's 2% upfront on a home value as a transaction cost. So you think a half million okay. dollar home, we're talking a $10,000 charge or financed expense being built into the loan that doesn't exist on the jumbo space or the proprietary okay. space. The trade-off is I'm going to have higher interest rates, potentially significantly higher interest rates on the jumbo space. So got it. There, there's costs there. It's, right. it, it, it's just different costs for the different tools. Yeah. Um, speaking of home value, Brenda asks, how is the loan valued? Is it through an appraisal? Yeah, it's a really good question, Brenda. Yes. Uh, every lender out there is going to require an FHA appraisal which is a little bit different than other traditional appraisals. They, they look at some other items. FHA has a little bit more restrictions in regards to what is allowed on a property or not, safety purposes, so on and so forth. Uh, so an appraisal would determine the value of the house. FHA does re reserve the right to require two appraisals and work off the lower value of the two. Okay. On refinances, that's about one out of six homes will get a second appraisal requested. Okay. And what's the approximate loan to value? So um, I'm 65. I have a home I own outright market value about $500,000. Know, what's the process? What can I expect in terms of loan I, I may be able to get? I think a realistic guideline to work from because it's age-based. So my age is going to determine this uh, as well as the current interest rate environment. But a, a safe guideline is roughly 50% of the acts, uh, the value of the home is what I'm going to have access to. Okay. Uh, so it's, 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 if it's a half million dollar home, I'm looking at roughly $250,000 uh, that might not include whatever transaction costs are associated with that and finance into the loan. So my net might actually be lower than that. Okay. And if I have any liens on the house, they have to be paid off. The reverse has to be first in line. So any liens on okay. the home, any tax liens, any existing first or second 
mortgages, any any PACE loans, or you know, we, we see a lot of the solar roof loans on the house mm -hmm. now that are put on S liens. That yeah. all of that would have to get paid off first, and that would be that would reduce whatever your access is going to be as we extinguish those other loans. So that all comes out of the, the two fifty in this example. So if I carried a okay. hundred thousand uh, dollars in a home equity line of credit balance, that's yeah. got to get paid off and extinguished. So my access would be two fifty minus whatever my transaction costs are minus that hundred thousand dollars. Okay. Then not that you necessarily need it, but now working backwards. So let's assume you do wipe out your other liens. The Heckam is is the first and sole lien at this point. Can you can you get another lien, a traditional home equity line of credit or something, if you want to, or do these do those lenders not work? next to a lien? Yeah. So, you know, that, that's a great question. And, you know, you look at home equity lines of credit HELOCs today and, and a lot of lenders aren't even willing to offer them at the moment. Uh, and the ones that okay. are, are really talking about coming into the space only in, in first in line, they, they won't even hmm. be willing to come second in line because there's a lot of risk associated with HELOCs for lenders. Sure. Uh, if you have the reverse mortgage, it, it is the one and only loan you will have on the house. It's the only lien that's going to be in place I, you know, the government obviously could add a tax lien on there if they needed to, uh, and yeah. they will if you don't pay your taxes. But you know that opens up a whole can of worms with the reverse mortgage in the first place because you you agree to certain covenants, and paying your taxes and staying current on those is one of them. Sure. Yeah. So I, I think that's important, and that may be not to say it's a misconception, but something people may not pick up on or may not fully appreciate. So the the beauty of the reverse mortgage is, like you said, you know, you don't typically don't have to repay the loan or even interest while you're alive, still in the house, correct? Yes. But so for property taxes, insurance, um, those need to be current, right? Uh, even things like general maintenance, like uh, another sort of upkeep. Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, here in the, I'm, I'm based in Florida and here in Florida, we've got a lot of homeowners associations. So you agreed to really three primary covenants when, when you take out a reverse mortgage loan, you agreed to maintain the residence as your principal residence to yep. arguably six months in a day out of the year, you've got to live there. You know, okay. there's a driver's license there, is your homestead there, that sort of thing. You agree to stay current on your taxes, insurance, and your homeowners association dues. Okay. Uh, and and the maintenance aspect of it, you agreed to keep the home in good shape. Essentially, whatever whatever shape it was in when you refinanced or, or, or took out the reverse mortgage, you're going to keep it in the same condition. Uh, that does mean if you have HOA restrictions or rules that you're abiding by them. If you break HOA rules, uh, that does go against the the what you're agreeing to. So that's something that a lot okay. of people don't realize. Now, how do people know? I mean, I, I guess being delinquent in property taxes and insurance, fairly straightforward, but um, does the lender occasionally drive by your house and see if you got like a you know rusted out car up on blocks in the front yard or something? Or um, how do they know the, the general upkeep thing? They, they really don't. I, I mean, okay. and, and even you think about how do they know you're keeping it as your principal residence? They, they, they hmm. really yeah. don't. It, Really, the onus on them is they're going to send out a letter once a year. They don't tell you when that says, uh -huh. hey, certify that you still live here. And if it okay. gets forwarded to another address or, you know, it, it gets returned to sender, then the lender is going to do some more due diligence. But really, there's there's nothing out there that I haven't seen lenders come out and say, you haven't maintained the house. We're, we're going to call the reverse mortgage. It's it's a right. rule, but it's it's not something that they can in practice really enforce. Sure. 
I guess unless you get a crazy amount of complaints from your neighbors that you got a meth lab or something going on. <laughs> that, that, that wouldn't be cool. Um, can you talk about Heckam for purchase and when that might be appropriate? Yeah. So this this is just, this is a strategy on the reverse mortgage. So I'm going to back up before I answer this, Andy. I, I, I think it's helpful to kind of talk about the three the three places I feel like the reverse mortgage can best be used. This is one of them. Right. Okay. Uh, and then we'll kind of talk about the appropriate side of it. So a lot of where it makes sense today is understanding where retirement planning is today and where we are demographically and behaviorally in, in retirement. And what I mean by that is retirement today is very different from what it was in the past and our behavior in retirement and how we, how we manage our money in retirement is very different than it was in the past. Yeah. Today. And I've already talked about, it, we've got, we've got longevity risk, which is something we didn't necessarily have to be concerned about in the past. Uh, we, we had a number of pensions in the past to really support the idea about living our assets. It wasn't a risk for a lot of people today. That's kind of flipped on its head. Social security, yeah. maybe not as sustainable as we once thought. Most people aren't carrying pensions and the burden's on our shoulders, right? So we've got longevity risk. With that, we've got inflation, which is higher for the elderly and housing costs especially tend to be outstripping inflation on a regular basis. So we've got increased costs going on. And we've got this scenario where people now carry debt into retirement that they never carried in the past. And it's not just credit card debt and installment debt, it is housing debt. 40% 40% of people go into retirement with some sort of lien on their house today. Okay. That was never the case in the past. Mm. So not only do we have this scenario where it's our, our arguably largest asset, but we also have this scenario where retirement's different and our behavior, the type of debt we carry has shifted. So the three places I see the reverse mortgage best use for people, when it's a large percentage of your overall wealth, your outside wealth of the home. So your other assets, your liquid money are heavily on the qualified side. So they're going to be taxes, ordinary income. So you got some tax concerns there too, and RMDs. And then you're carrying a mortgage obligation. And about one out of six people today, I believe the number is about 18% are going to be carrying a mortgage obligation for at least eight plus years in retirement. So that's kind of the ideal number one client that should be considering this as a tool. Uh, the second client is probably the purchase client, and the purchase is a newer concept. The purchase is using the money as a lump sum. It, it's this idea that, that just like paying off an existing mortgage, it's using it as a lump sum. This is buying a house with it in one transaction. Okay. It came out in 2011. So you think the reverse mortgage, well, Josh said it was signed into law in 88. This came out in 2011. So it's still a reverse mortgage, but it's a very different way to use it. You purchase a home, you put about 50-ish percent down and you borrow the rest, just like you would for traditional financing. But the amount you borrow is in a reverse mortgage and it does not have a monthly principal and interest payment associated with it. Uh, Essentially, it it does two things. It either allows somebody to really extend and leverage their purchasing power. It's almost as if you're buying cash, but now you have a lot more leverage to the cash you're putting down, or it's kind of like buying a property on sale. Hey, you know what? I'm buying a property as if I was buying all cash, but I'm only putting about 50% down. So that again, becomes appropriate when you have a whole lot of equity that you would be putting into the house by not doing this. 
but it might not make sense to be that heavily weighted into the house as an asset. I think the easiest way for me to describe that is if I were to say, hey, you've got two places to put your money and one place is liquid and diversified and it's not going to be extraordinarily volatile. And, you know, generally speaking, it's not going to have these wild swings in the marketplace and and you've got access to it. So so kind of all good things, a lot of flexibility there. I I would argue that's kind of all the money outside of your house. When you think about the money inside the house, now I have an extraordinarily concentrated asset. It's almost like owning an individual stock in a sense. All my wealth is concentrated in one single asset that will likely and historically has had wild fluctuations in value that could change on a dime at any time. And it's a liquid for the most part. And so if that's a concern and you sit back and you say, I either can't afford the lifestyle I want, or I can't afford to, to really retire for any length of time. If I concentrate my wealth in a single asset like that, that's when the heckum for purchase makes a whole lot of sense. Okay. Got it. And, and does that presuppose, um, if you already have a primary residence, uh, what am I trying to say? I guess you either have to sell that monetize it to have the cash to roll into the new house or have this other big pot of cash on the side to buy your new place with the heckum and then sell your other one right like you, you can't pull double duty with uh or i guess maybe hmm, can you have a heckum on your first house and then a sec uh, another heckum on your second house or are you only allowed one heckum per person just just one at one at a time and, and, okay. and it, it makes sense because it has to be your principal residence. You can't oh, carry right, right, right. principal residence. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, but you know, you think about that. There are people out there that are going to go buy a house and not sell the house that they're in. And you know, what other assets are they invading to accomplish that? Yeah. You know, and and well, if I'm going to buy a half million dollar house, does it make sense to draw half a million dollars from the other's assets if I only need to draw a quarter of a million dollars? And and maybe it doesn't make sense. Maybe the tax ramifications right. don't make sense, or maybe there's a liquidity there that you can't really afford to do that. Or you've got you've got a number of reasons you might want not want to do that. But for most people, Andy, I, the reality in this country is for most people, we're selling a principal residence. We've got a substantial amount of equity. Now it's just a question of do we want to transfer all that equity right. into another home, or does it make sense to try to preserve some of that equity and keep it outside of the house if we don't need to? Right. Got it. Okay. So that's two. And then the, the third time where uh, it most makes sense? The third time it most makes sense is when you are in a situation where you are really susceptible to financial shocks. It, it really becomes strategic risk management. And and people have traditionally used home equity lines of credit for this, right? You know, yeah. home equity line of credit, super easy to open. It's, it's relatively inexpensive, if not free to do. You get access to a big chunk of money in your house. You don't have to spend it until you need it. And now you have yeah. an emergency account to work with. Uh, the reverse mortgage offers you the same sort of thing, except it's not free. It costs money to do typically, and it can be a substantial amount of money, but it's non-callable. It's guaranteed. And it will always be there, assuming you live in the house and you stay current on your taxes and insurance. So from a longer term yeah. view, compare that to your home equity line of credit, which is callable by the banks. And we saw that yeah. back in 08 to the tune yeah. of $6 billion plus dollars of home equity lines getting called. Uh, non-guaranteed, that has a required payment with it. And for most of us, if we're trying to borrow money for a financial shock, the last thing we want to create is a cash flow problem on the back end. And unfortunately, that's what happens a lot of times when we use traditional lines of credit. So that third aspect is it's just pure strategic planning. It's risk mitigation and prevention for the future. Got it. 
A um, couple, a few other questions here. So from David Myers, what are the interest rates? I guess question is on Heckam's relative to traditional mortgages, which mortgage rates are really cheap right now. They are. They are. Borrowing money today is unbelievably cheap. It, it blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's, right. it's, it's crazy. So I, I quoted somebody today and, and let, let's be specific. It's May 12th, 2021 and interest rates fluctuate every day. So this is going to change. But I quoted somebody a rate of sub two today, less than 2% on an adjustable rate reverse mortgage. So when we compare this to traditional mortgages, I would say it's really pretty much right in line. I mean, there might be a little bit of a premium there, but it's, it's not, it's not as if I'm paying a large premium or, or Delta in my interest rates simply because it's a reverse mortgage. Chances are, if there is a premium, it's minor. And, you know, for the benefit of not having to make payment, I think most people would look at it as a a fairly reasonable premium, but they're they're pretty close in line, David. Okay. And the, um, so that's the ongoing rate itself. You mentioned it's, what's a 2% upfront for the FHA insurance fund. Is there an option to spread that out? When I first learned of reverse mortgages or something called MIP or MPI, whatever it is, and that was basically paying a monthly fee into the uh, FHA insurance fund. Is that not an option anymore? So no, they, they've streamlined over the years, the MIP, which is the mortgage insurance fund that we're talking about. So 2% upfront, half a percent ongoing on your loan balance. That's just getting financed into the loan. So we on have, we have okay. our interest rate. Let's say we have an interest rate of two and a half percent. We yep. have what's called an effective rate. So my effective rate on the loan is not two and a half percent. It's two and a half percent plus a half a percent on my MIP. It's really a 3% effective rate. And the balance of the loan, meaning only when you draw or what you're approved to be able to draw? Only on what you've drawn. So whatever finance, closing costs you have in there, plus whatever you've chosen to spend. Okay, got it. Um, another question here from the other David, David Fultz. In terms of the overall cost as a percentage of the value of the house, how much is it costing you for a reverse mortgage? I guess that we just sort of touched on a little bit, but yeah, but I'll, I'll speak to it because it it's interesting here in Florida. I, I think we're probably in the most expensive state in the country to do it for a number of reasons. We've got some real estate transactional taxes associated with mortgage transactions. So you have a stamp tax and an intangible tax. You, you look at the reverse mortgage and you've got a max origination charge of $6,000. So, so there, there's guidelines for what the maximum origination okay. charges can be. And then you have your standard third-party closing costs where there's just a ton of line item third-party closing costs you're going to deal with. So you, you look at it and you say a half million dollar house, I have that 2% MIP, maybe I have a $6,000 origination charge on it. I'm talking max assumed costs right now. Yep. Here in the state of Florida, you could easily have a loan of twenty-five dollars to $30,000 of cost to get it done with maximum assumed cost. Okay. If I'm only getting access to a quarter of a million dollars and it's costing me $25,000 as a percentage, it's a really big number. But yeah. the interesting thing about lending and, and the loan world is just because there's maximum assumed cost, it's not actually what you're going to pay in a competitive market environment. You know, mm. you know that that mortgage I spoke about earlier, well, it's also got all the costs associated with it credited back. And I'm not saying that's every single case, but it doesn't matter that it's a loan that costs $30,000. The lender's paying those fees on your behalf anyways. So it's a zero cost loan to you as a borrower. I'm not saying that's always the case, but people get caught up in this idea that reverse mortgages are very expensive for what you get. It totally depends on your situation and the structure of the loan. There are a lot of levers that can be pulled there. 
So it's not necessarily an expensive loan. People just have this, this idea that they always are because your maximum assumed cost certainly can be. Yeah. There's a few other questions, but, but I have some, some general ones. So can you walk through uh, the different types of loans, style of loans? So there's a traditional fixed rate. Mm-hmm. And that's where, let's assume 250 is a loan amount you're able to pull. So you get that guaranteed accessible to you. And the rate of interest is locked and guaranteed during the life? Yeah, so let, let's let's talk about that because there, there's some nuances here when you look at fixed versus adjustable, which are really the, the two routes you can go. So fixed rate okay. loans require you to use your money up front. So there there okay. is no line of credit associated with a Got fixed it. rate loan. So, if I, so if you're that pulling all 250 on day one, less whatever costs were deducted out of it. Okay. Got well, it. there's even further nuances than that. And it's really interesting, Andy. FHA has the HUD has a cap on how much you can draw on day one. And it's 60% of what that value is, unless you're extinguishing a debt obligation on the house. So unless you're eliminating a lien, you're not actually accessing $250,000. You're only allowed to access 60% of $250,000. Okay. So the fixed rate loans really, I, I think at this point, they're less than 15% of the marketplace in the reverse mortgage world because it's just very restrictive. Unless you are using it for those first two uh, profiles I described, which were lump sum payoffs of whether purchasing a house or, or paying off an existing loan, the fix doesn't make a ton of sense for people. And mathematically, okay. it doesn't make a ton of sense because you're creating a large balance. And if you don't need a large balance, why would you create one in the first place? Sure. Okay. So, But fixed rate to your point, if I'm paying a three and a half percent fixed rate loan, it's three and a half percent for however long I'm on the house. Doesn't I could be in the house for the next 30 years. Doesn't matter. It's never moving. It's always going to be three and a half percent. And, and even in that case, um, you're still not required to pay anything other than taxes, insurance, HOA fees. You still don't have to pay anything under a fixed rate loan. That's that's correct. You don't have to pay anything. You could. The, the interest accrues, I guess. Yeah. So one extreme, you don't pay anything while you live there as your primary residence and you, you keep up on taxes, insurance, HOA fees, maintenance, um, whatever you don't pay, I assume the clock's still ticking on interest. So it's just adding to the outstanding loan amount, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we think, we think a traditional mortgage, we start up here over time, we pay it off. The balance goes down, 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 down. With yep. these, we start down here. And because we're choosing not to make payments more often than not, our loan balance is going up, 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 up. Okay. Key concept here though. I, I think really, really important, Andy, we talk about, the loan of last resort versus using this earlier yeah. as a loan of last resort. It doesn't matter that there's an option to make payments on it. The people doing it as a loan of last resort cannot make payments on right. it. They're using it for a reason. It's it's extraordinarily need-based. They are desperate. They are backed into a corner. I would say that's a really bad time to have to be forced to make any decision. Right. When we use it earlier and we use it with assets, you can make payments on a reverse mortgage. They're just not mandated. Right. And you now have the flexibility to treat this debt and manage it. And, and it becomes, it, the utility really skyrockets when, when you get to that. So, um, yeah. You probably wouldn't do that with a fixed rate loan though. I mean, it, if you're going to do something like that, you would probably want to do the adjustable rate because you have a line of credit. And just like traditional lines of credit, uh, for those of, a, of us who are familiar, if I borrow money and then pay it back, it becomes accessible again. Yeah. And so if I'm going to get a reverse mortgage and I'm going to make payments into it, I, I probably would want the adjustable rate because it, it it gives me access to that money again. 
Okay. Um, I have a question about adjustable rate before that. I think this segues nicely into Mavis's question. Are there potential issues or things to look out for for the heirs of someone that does reverse mortgage? So, so back to my previous example, you take out a fixed rate loan, 60% of 250. What is that? That's, uh, oh, geez, that's 150 bucks if I did the math right. 150,000. Um, Pretty good. I think so. Yeah, all right. <laughs> 25. Yeah. Um, so, so let's assume person dies. They never repaid the loan. So now that loan's 300 grand, let's say. House value's 400. What happens? You know, walk through at a high level, the state administration, what's, what, what do the heirs have to do? What happens with the house and the loan? Yeah, this is, this is where the concept of like a ladybird deed or some sort of, you know, uh, assumability upon death, transfer upon death makes a whole lot of sense because otherwise the house is going to probate. And depending on what probate's like in that specific state, it could, it could become a real headache and hassle for heirs. More often than not, the challenge with somebody passing with the reverse mortgage is they are the heirs are not an authorized uh, individual to the lender. So the lender is not allowed to give them any information and it's got to work through probate. And the challenge with that is HUD mandates that lenders start foreclosure proceedings within six months. So if the, okay. if the borrower is no longer in the residence for six months uh, or 12 plus months you know, while they're still alive, HUD's mandating that the foreclosure proceedings start. So the lenders have no choice here. They have to legally start foreclosure proceedings. And it's just a pain in the butt because you might not be able to manage to that within probate until probate gets cleared. So mm. in that sense, it's it all comes down to planning. I, I mean, truly, a reverse mortgage to me should never be used in a vacuum. It should be part of a greater overall plan. Yeah. And if your estate planning is done correctly, the reverse mortgage really should be a very, very clean instrument to pass on to heirs and beneficiaries. There's either going to be value left in the home, in which case there's net proceeds to pass on to the estate if, if people yeah. choose to liquidate, or they can choose to refinance the, the loan into another loan under their names and keep the home or pay it off with, with outside assets and proceeds. Or there's no equity left in the home, in which case, you know, the estate's essentially selling it or, or providing a deed in lieu of foreclosure to the lender and saying, hey, there's there's no reason for me to deal with this. There's no, It's a dead asset to us, right? There's no value yeah. in the house anymore. It's been spent. Key piece here, the non-recourse feature, there is no additional liability being passed on to beneficiaries. So if my house is worth half Got a it. million, but I owe 750 we're not passing on an additional $250,000 of liability to the estate or beneficiaries. That's being paid by the insurance fund. That's the non-recourse insurance you're paying for. So there's no risk to the heirs there if it is underwater upon, upon the death. Correct. Got it. Okay. And just, this may be more of a legal question, but you mentioned six months of state administration. So if I'm the child of a parent who recently died and has an outstanding reverse mortgage balance, um, and let's assume the house is titled to me, not titled to me, but in the will, uh, the house is left to me, let's say. Can I or the executor, what am I trying to say? Who actually sells the house? Is the, the bank completely controls the sale of the house to get themselves paid back and the estate gets what's left? Or can the executor and or kids control the sale? So executor and kids control the sale. So, so I mean, okay. this, this is, this is their, it's their home and ownership, right? In this instance, the ownership has passed to them, okay. their owners, the, the bank is just a lien holder. Uh, and so they, they have control. And as long as they're showing good faith effort to satisfy the lien in some way, that six month window can actually be extended 
by three months, two times. So, so effectively, you have a, a full 12 months to satisfy the lien as long as you can show the, the servicing lender a good faith effort to, to satisfy, whether that's sale or refinance, whatever it has to be. And in the interim, from the time the person dies to when I actually sell it six to 12 months later, um, still nothing is due other than upkeep, taxes, insurance, whatever, correct? Yes, but your interest okay. also happens to continue to be accruing. Still running, yeah. Right? So, okay. so I mean, okay. that's, that's a negative to kind of dragging your feet on it. You, can't, you probably want to satisfy the obligation at that point as soon as you can to limit the, uh, the growing liability, assuming there's still equity in the house. Got it. All right. Let's uh, cut it there for now. That was the first half of my of my chat with Josh Bloom from Mutual of Omaha about reverse mortgages. There's another approximately 35 minutes left of that video clip. So be sure to stick around. Listen to next week's podcast episode, episode 43, where I will bring to you the uh, part two of two of my chat with Josh Bloom about reverse mortgages. As always, if you if you like this podcast and the things discussed here, you'll definitely like my other content sources. My Facebook group is Taxes and Retirement. My YouTube channel is Retirement Planning Demystified. And my newsletter is Retirement Planning Insights. You can find links to all three in, uh, in the notes of the show. And if you do appreciate, enjoy, value this podcast, I'd be greatly thankful if you were to take a couple minutes and leave a little review, a thumbs up. Um, uh, five stars or whatever, you know, whatever's available on the podcast platform you use to listen to this. It'd be greatly, greatly appreciated. Thank you. Well, that's it. That's a wrap for today. Be sure to step, uh, stop by next week. Listen to part two again with uh, Josh Bloom, Mutual of Omaha. Take care. See you next time. The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you. Thank you.